Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. We are glad you were here. Yeah, there he is. Okay. Uh, that picture up on the screen is uh, probably the toughest little bird you've never heard of. And uh, if unless you're a very dedicated birder, uh, this bird is an amazing bird. It is a bar-tailed godwit, a bar-tailed godwit, G-O-D-W-I-T, and uh, not a half-wit, but a godwit. And uh, this bird, this small bird, uh, spends uh, par- part of its life in northern Alaska, part of the year, but every fall it flies 7,000 miles to New Zealand. And uh, as the young birds mature and start to migrate, something wired in them also directs them to fly to New Zealand, even though they've never been there. And uh, they are a land bird, and they cannot fish or they cannot land in the water. And so they will cross to almost all of the Pacific Ocean and fly all the way to New Zealand. Many of them are young and have never done this before. And... uh, we wonder, how do they do that? You know, they, have, they don't understand the, the stars in the southern hemisphere. They've never seen them. They don't know, but they manage somehow to make this journey every year. In fact, scientists have tracked one female, and they've dubbed her, named her E7, because that's the code on her wireless transmitter. And E7, this female, on her last trip, flew 7,369 miles in 8.1 days, because she flies nonstop. If you can imagine that, my arms are tired thinking about that. Uh, But the same homing signal that guides them over the treacherous waters to New Zealand also guides them back to Alaska when they return in the spring. I am pretty sure that the scientists did not have to tell E7, it's time to migrate. You're supposed to go to New Zealand. It's part of their nature, how God built them. And so the bar-tailed godwit is an amazing little bird that I'd never heard of until this week as I read about their story. You know, we as human beings are also built for relationship and built with an inbuilt homing signal, if you will. As God has created his creation, uh, the God of eternity, it tells us, Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that he has put eternity in our hearts In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it tells us that God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. And for all human beings, whether they recognize it or not, whether they know it or not, have this, as one philosopher said, a God-shaped vacuum in their heart and soul. And so like that little bird that goes every year, we have a homing signal which directs us to God and eternity, whether we recognize it or not. Of course, we fill up our lives with all sorts of things which uh, deflect us from that homing signal, if you will. Well, as we come to the book of Ephesians, this little letter the Apostle Paul wrote about 62 AD to the church at Ephesus, and it was probably spread throughout Asia Minor to other churches to be read and uh, copied and uh, dispersed. Uh, from the Apostle Paul, but the Apostle Paul has a purpose here in writing this letter to the churches, and we have it today, and it's come down to us through the centuries, protected by God's sovereign grace as he's brought us his word through us. Uh, But the book of Ephesians, this little letter can be divided equally into two parts. Very easy to remember the big outline of uh, Ephesians, and the first three chapters are, I should ask you, the first three chapters are, are what? It starts with a W. Wealth, good, good. One person is listening, that's good. (laughs) 
Chapters 1 through 3 talks about our wealth or our blessings, our position in Christ as believers. Remember, this book is written to Christians. It is written to those who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in him for everlasting life. And then, so we have our wealth in chapters 4 through 6. It's also a W word. He explains our walk. There we go. Good. Yeah, so wealth and walk, that's one way to remember it. Uh, or our position and our practice is another uh, way to remember it. So that's the major big breakdown of this letter to Ephesians. It always amazes me. It's just a few pages in my Bible here, four or five pages, and yet uh, I have volumes of commentaries which are larger than the whole Bible himself just on this one book. Scholars have dedicated their lives to studying and understanding the Apostle Paul's words here, and we enjoy the wealth of that scholarly endeavor. But uh, the Apostle Paul, in this passage, if you've been with us in chapter 2, he has been talking about this new society that is being formed, this new race, if you will, because we don't fully appreciate it, but in the first century there's a gigantic divide between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Unless you were born ethnically a Jew, you are a Gentile. And so I would assume that most of us fall into the Gentile category. The Apostle Paul was struggling with this, and he recognized that it could be very divisive in the early church. And uh, so he's writing to tell us that the Lord Jesus Christ has done such an amazing work that he has brought Jew and Gentile together, which was a phenomenal thing. So in chapter 2, he has talked about this union of Jewish and Gentile believers, and then he explains the consequence of that union. So today we're going to look at verses 19 through 22 and finish out the chapter. And it is basically the consequence of this new race called the church. No longer Jewish, no longer Gentile, but the Christian church, the the bride of Christ. This new society that God rules, he loves, he lives in it. If you're a God follower, if you're a Christ follower, do you really understand the status that you enjoy Uh, the status and the structure that is built into us as believers in Jesus Christ. And so in verse 19, as he begins this, as we need to appreciate what God is doing, he talks about apprehending our status or our position in verse 19. Let me read that again for you. So then, that beginning words there, in other words, in light of everything that he said before in chapter 2, our uh, separation from God as Gentiles, our separation from one another, uh, our alienation, basically, but because of Christ, we are brought together in this Jewish-Gentile union called the church because of what Christ has done. He said, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. He's describing for us the position we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the status we have. And there's three things that he talks about. He talks about the fact that we are no longer foreigners, that we belong to a new fellowship, and that we have a new family. So we're no longer foreigners, he said. This is past tense in the sense that he's saying this is, you're no longer who you used to be. You're no longer strangers. He uses that word, you're no longer strangers or outcasts. Historically, in the context, a stranger in a community would be viewed greatly with great suspicion and was held primarily as an enemy of that community and sometimes even an outlaw that would deserve death. This is a serious charge to be called a stranger, but he says we are no longer strangers. And uh, so when you arrive in a new place, you are a stranger. 
I've told you about uh, our great adventure when we moved to Dallas and we uh, ended up in Amarillo for the night, Amarillo, Texas, and the panhandle there arrived about 9 o'clock at night with our rental truck pulling our car with children and a dog in the cab, and uh, we, were, we were confused, okay? I told you last week, men never get lost. They just get confused. My wife would say I was lost, and so I stopped, and I'm sorry, men, but I did stop and ask directions because I was a stranger, I know. I'm sorry. I've let you down. It took a while for me to stop, though, but I did stop at a fast food restaurant, went in, and there was a guy standing there working behind the counter. I asked him where our motel was, and he had just arrived about two hours before from Pakistan, so he was, a, he was more of a stranger than I was. He was no help at all, and, uh, but he did try. And, uh, but I was a stranger in that community. And the apostle says, once we were strangers, we were outcasts. We weren't there. Uh, we did know that God, we, we did not know what God could do for us. As people who didn't believe in Jesus Christ, we didn't know where we found the resources of joy and peace. We knew nothing of the capacity for handling the fears that come into life and the phobias, the hostilities that come into our lives, the adversities. We did not know what to do with them. Uh, I don't know if you remember those times, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We were utter strangers, did not know how to handle them. But now, he says, because of what Christ has done, we are no longer strangers or outcasts. And secondly, he says, you're no longer aliens. You're no longer an alien, which means a sojourner. And it could be somebody who's a resident but without the full rights. We have friends in the upper Midwest, originally from Indonesia, and Bertie and Sandra came over here on a medical visa, uh, and yet they did not enjoy the full privileges of citizenship because they were still aliens. They were resident aliens in this country, and we are no longer foreigners as believers in Jesus Christ. A foreigner is different than a stranger. A foreigner may be very familiar with the country or the city that they live in, they may have lived there for many years and be very uh, familiar with all the possibilities of that place, but they're limited. They have no ultimate rights of the country. They are no, not citizens. Uh, they're living on a passport. They do not have a birth certificate that makes them a citizen of the land. I didn't think much about the privileges of citizenship until returning from Indonesia, and we landed in, uh, where did we land? Los Angeles. And uh, there was a line for U.S. citizens, and we have the nice little blue passport with the seal, the U.S. seal on the front. And I noticed there were other passports, a lot of other colors, different country seals. But if you're a U.S. citizen coming back in the country, there's a special line for you. And it looked to me like it went quicker. I don't know, but it just seemed that. But it seemed like, boy, what a privilege with this little booklet that I can go in and get through very quickly and re-enter the country that I belong to. And uh, so that is the picture here. And the Apostle Paul tells us we are no longer foreigners. That's a past tense status for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to apprehend that and remember that because we are now no longer strangers, no longer aliens, no longer foreigners. In the second part of verse 19, we belong to a new fellowship. Look at verse 19 again. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens with the saints. That's a positional declaration. Remember in the New Testament, uh, everybody who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is called a saint. 
And that simply means one who is set apart unto the holiness of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's not because we live like a plaster saint in Rome or something, but it's because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. And his righteousness is imputed to us, and we are his special possession. So we are under new authority. We possess new privileges. We are made citizens of heaven. That's not a future by-and-by thing. That is right now. If you're a believer in Christ, you are already a citizen of heaven. You are under protection of the king himself, King Jesus, and you have access to the king himself. Interesting that we are called priests because we don't need a priest, uh, a man priest, to go to God for us. We can go directly to him. It's called the priesthood of the believer. We have that great privilege of access. We talked about that a little bit last week. And so we belong to a special fellowship, citizenship with the saints. We have our citizenship papers. We have proof because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we are no longer foreigners. We belong to a new fellowship. And thirdly, in the third part of verse 19, we have a new family, a new family. Notice again at the end of verse 19, he says, but you are of God's household. What a household to be part of when you think of God. God is righteous. God is just. God doesn't make any mistakes. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. What a household to belong to. There's no arguments around the dinner table there, and we are part of God's household. That's a present tense declaration of who and what we are. A child always outranks any ambassador or governor or secretary or minister or senator. I still remember that picture when John Fitzgerald Kennedy was president and his son, little John John, I don't remember that picture, was crawling around under the presidential desk in the Oval Office. And uh, he had access because that was his father, even though his father was probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. And I think of that when we are of a new family, we're in a new household, we are children of God. The provision and the protection of God our Father is always more intimate and personal than that of a king because he is our Father, God the Father. He's concerned about our general welfare, but a father wants to know about our intimate problems. Think about what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 12, Matthew chapter 10. Listen as I read those verses. Do you not know that your heavenly Father knows that you have a need of these things? He even knows the number of hairs on your head. The all-knowing God knows everything about us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a a great preacher and commentator from times past, wrote, We no longer live on a passport, but we really do have our birth certificates. We really do belong. And uh, that's what Paul is telling us here. You know, it's possible that we have family members that are scattered miles away from us. And uh, some of you have family members who are thousands of miles away, but you're still related. That doesn't distance doesn't negate the fact that you are related to that family member. Uh, we are members of one another, uh, but you are widely separated, haven't seen a, each other for a while, perhaps even quite a while. Uh, but in uh, the fact is that we are part of God's household with believers in Christ. I'm always staggered uh, when I've had the privilege to travel somewhere overseas or here in this country to run into other believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that instant bond, isn't there? Because we are children of the King. 
The Apostle Paul uh, changes the metaphor here a bit. He goes from a family household metaphor and he goes to a building or architectural metaphor. He talks about construction uh, and he talks about this. Even though we can be distantly unrelated or away from our relatives, the fact is we are closely joined together as believers in Jesus Christ. We are knit together. He's going to talk about stones that are knit together and formed together. And he's bringing us into this intimate relationship. So we need to not only uh, remember our status or our position, but also to appreciate the new structure. Ephesians is about the church. Now, remember, the church is not this building. The church are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a living organism, and he's going to talk about that here. Uh, So we appreciate the new structure. In verse 20, he says, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Uh, when we lived in Dallas while I was going to grad school, every day I would drive by a construction site near the seminary down there. And uh, it was just a large lot that they had cleared out. And it seemed to take forever, like eight months or something. And nothing was happening. I couldn't see anything happening. There was construction materials and machinery, but nothing was happening from my vantage point. And yet what what they were doing is they were building eight stories down, you know, the parking garage and everything else, and down to bedrock to form the foundation of that building. In verse 20, it tells us that we have a firm foundation. We need to appreciate the structure that we rest on. We have a firm foundation of the apostles and the prophets. By the way, these are not the Old Testament prophets. These are New Testament prophets that uh, we see in the book of Acts. In fact, if you go over to chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 5, it says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has been made known, revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Notice the word order here, apostles and prophets. And, of course, the apostle was one that was sent by God with a message like the apostle Paul, like, Uh, the Apostle John, uh, and elsewhere, the Apostle Peter. And then chapter 4, verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. And he's talking about spiritual engiftments. In other words, Holy Spirit in energized ministry, people specifically gifted in these areas. But also notice back in chapter 2, we have a firm foundation that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, I noticed that that building in Dallas, once the superstructure started to go up, they didn't go back and keep rebuilding the foundation, did they? It was already set. Now, there are some arms and uh, slices of Christianity today which claims that they have apostles and prophets, and yet the church was foundational in the fact that there are apostles and prophets, and we don't have them anymore. The New Testament doctrine, it's not about the bones of these men and women, but it is about New Testament doctrine. And so this chief uh, tells us that Christ is the chief cornerstone, and you need a reference point when you lay out the foundation, first of all. And interestingly, Isaiah, some 700 years earlier, wrote these words, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed, Isaiah 28:16. The prophet Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, is looking ahead to the coming Messiah, and God told him that he was going to make this a cornerstone, that this was the beginning of something new. 
Peter, later on in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, quotes Isaiah when he talks about the whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, this cornerstone, this chief cornerstone. The apostle says Christ himself is this chief cornerstone. Now, I don't know if this building has a cornerstone, but I'm assuming that when they laid the foundation for this building, that they shot off of a certain point so everything was level and perfect in its construction. When you build a building, you have to place that cornerstone, that reference point that you begin from, and all the measurements start from there, and they're taken from that point. Everything relates to it. It all ties together because of that reference point, that cornerstone. And the Apostle Paul depicts Jesus as having that kind of relationship with you and I. All through this letter, he cannot forget him for a second. As you read through Ephesians, it says everything is in Christ, in him, by him, through him, through his blood, by his death. Everything comes back to the Lord Jesus Christ in this letter. If you do not have Jesus, there's no way you can have intimate fellowship with God. There are some people who say they believe in God, but they don't believe in Jesus. Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me, John 14, 6. So it is all built on Christ. He is the cornerstone of our faith. He is, uh, he is the, the one who begins it, and then the apostles and prophets build on that, the foundation, which is New Testament doctrine. That building in Dallas, after I watched it, it seemed like for months, drove by, and pretty soon the superstructure started to go up for this gigantic business tower. And then you could see the superstructure was resting on that foundation. You know, in practical terms, the church around the world, no matter the flavor of Christianity, is built on the New Testament scriptures, or should be. If it is not, it is not a true Christian church. Uh, They're the foundational documents. That's why here at Grace Point we focus on the exposition, the explanation, the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, A foundation cannot be tampered with once it has been laid and the superstructure is being built upon it. The New Testament foundation of the church is inviolable and cannot be changed by any addition or subtraction or modification by teachers who claim to be apostles and prophets today. Uh, in fact, some would claim they're receiving new revelation from God. Uh, I would question that deeply because God has declared that this is his revelation to us. The church stands or falls by its loyal dependence on the foundational truths which God revealed to his apostles and prophets and now preserved for us in New Testament scriptures. So we have a firm foundation. In verse 21, we are a new formation. Look at verse 21 with me. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We start getting an insight about the purpose of this building. This living building is being fitted together. The formation of the whole church is fitted masterfully together. The word there that's used is only used twice in the New Testament that fitted together. Again, it's used in chapter 4, verse 16. But the word that is used there talks about a craftsman who very carefully fits everything together perfectly and rightly. There was a London businessman named Lindsay Clegg. Uh, he wrote about an experience he had. Uh, he owned a warehouse property in greater London there, and he was selling a building that had been empty for many months, and he relates that it greatly needed repairs. Vandals had damaged the place, smashed the windows, thrown trash around the interior, And as he was showing the property to a prospective buyer, Lindsay Clegg 
uh, said that he took pains to tell this person that he would repair the broken windows. He'd bring in a crew, a construction crew, to repair any structural damage and clean out the garbage. But the buyer told him, he said, forget about the repairs. When I buy this place, I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the building. I want the site. Compared with the renovation God has in mind of our lives, our efforts to improve our own lives are as trivial as trying to sweep out a cluttered warehouse before the wrecking ball shows up. When we become God, God's person, the old life is over, 2 Corinthians 5.17. He makes all things new. It's not about renovation. It's about Jesus Christ changing us the way he's designed us to. In this passage, it's full of Old Testament imagery about the temple in Jerusalem, God's dwelling place among his people in the Old Testament. And here he's talking about his dwelling place now is not a physical structure like the temple in Jerusalem, but it is the church. It is his people collectively. The formation of the whole church growing together in a holy sanctuary, not because we're holy, but because he is making us holy, because His holiness, his righteousness is given to us. And the Lord continues individually with each believer, the Holy Spirit indwells you, but also collectively as the body of Christ, the church. So we have this firm foundation, a new formation. In verse 22, we have a new function in whom also you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Very clear here that we are a dwelling place for God. I don't know if you ever thought about that as a local church, as the church universal, as the church worldwide. Uh, but the God, this is his dwelling place. It's interesting, the Old Testament, uh, the temple of Solomon, when Solomon built the temple, uh, we read in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7, and the house, while it was being built, was built of stone prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe or any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. It was a quiet, secret process there in the Old Testament. Stones were shaped at the quarry and then brought up to be fitted into place without the sound of a hammer. This was a beautiful picture of God doing what Jesus Christ is doing today in his church. We are temples of the living God. Individually, our bodies are the temple of God himself. If we understood that and the relationship in which it brings us With God as king and father, there are great resources to draw upon. I think of the church and, of course, uh, those of us who are elders and in places of ministry and responsibility uh, not only rejoice and see wonderful things, but we also hear the criticism and the difficulty, not just of any local church, but the church worldwide. We seem to be criticized by those who hate Jesus, as well as, surprisingly, even by other Christians who criticize a local church. I was reading about a man named Earl Palmer. He is an author, and he was once a, a pastor of a local church. And uh, one time, uh, he ran into some critics of his church, and they were railing against his church for being hy- uh, hypocritical, scandalous, and irrelevant uh, footprint in our culture. And uh, he, this was his response. He said, uh, when California's Milpitas High School Orchestra attempts Beethoven's Ninth Sympathy. The result is appalling, he said. I wouldn't be surprised if the performance of uh, the Ninth Symphony uh, symphony made old... (laughs) There we go. Uh, 
made old Ludwig roll over in his grave despite of his deafness. And you might ask, well, why bother then? Why would a high school band orchestra try to attempt this piece? Why inflict on those poor children, those kids, the terrible burden of trying to render uh, what the immortal Beethoven had in mind? Not even the great Chicago Symphony Orchestra can attain that perfection. Palmer goes on to write, my answer is this. That high school orchestra will give some people in that audience the only encounter with Beethoven's great Ninth Symphony. Far from perfection, it is nevertheless the only way they will hear Beethoven's message. Of course, Palmer is pointing out that the only way a starving, thirsty, deluded, and suffering world will ever hear the music of the gospel is through the body of Christ, through the church. Arguably, he says, the worst high school orchestra ever to appear on the grandstand. And he goes on to write, if performance standards are really the most important measure, then the church is in trouble. But God is determined to take the perfection of his solo performance for the possibility of playing a little improvisational uh, jazz with us. The screechy saxophone players in the kingdom of God's ragtag orchestra. And so our status is one of citizenship, of belonging, of a new family, of being in God's household. And the new structure is one that God has been working on for 2,000 years. And we continue the joy and the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done. I read in a book called uh, Because He Loves Me, uh, the author is Elise Fitzpatrick. And she tells of this incident when she and her husband uh, had the wonderful opportunity to vacation in Europe. And they were there for three and a half weeks, and she writes that we visited 13 different nations. We'd enter a country, we'd get our passport stamped, exchange currencies, learn a few key phrases, then off we'd go and visit the natives. We'd wander through outdoor markets, we'd go to the museums, sample the food, we'd exchange a few niceties with the locals, sit on the steps of the cathedrals, watch the life of the town go by, take a picture or two and purchase a little something to remind us of our time there, and then we were off to the next place. We had a wonderful vacation, but our hearts weren't changed in any significant ways by our little visits, but they weren't even meant to be. We were tourists. And then she goes on to write, it seems to me that what I've just described is very close to many people's understanding of the congregational life of a local church. On any given weekend, many tourists can be found in church. They pop in for 45 minutes or an hour, sing a chorus or two, exchange niceties with the locals, they sample some of the local food. They might purchase or get a book or a CD to remind them of their visit, and then they race to their cars to get to their favorite restaurant before the rush or home before the game. For many people, church is simply about being a tourist, and our land is filled with tourist-friendly churches. We belong to a new structure. We have a new status. We are different because we are a new society. The church and being a member of a church, not I'm not talking about official membership because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a way of life. It means participation in an intricate web of hospitality, living at the intersection of human need and God's grace, inhabiting a community where men and women who don't fit are welcomed, where neglected children are noticed, where the stories of Jesus are told, where people who have no stories find that they have stories, stories that are part of the Jesus story. 
being a church member, places us strategically yet unobtrusively at a heavily trafficked intersection between heaven and earth. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning.